the American Battlefield Trust seeks to preserve our nation's hallowed battlegrounds and educate the public about what happened there and why it matters today. They permanently protect these battlefields for future generations as a lasting and tangible memorial to the brave soldiers who fought in the American Revolution, the War of 1812, and the Civil War. You can help save battlefield land today by visiting battlefields.org. What's up, everybody? Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Tattooed Historian Show. My name is John. I am the Tattooed Historian, and I have a very special audio edition of a live stream we did last week with Mr. Harold Holzer, renowned Lincoln scholar, has numerous books out. I think he's up to 53 books now, hundreds of articles. He's edited many things. You may have seen him on programs all over uh, your media stations. You may have seen him on CNN. You could have seen him on uh, all kinds of different channels. Uh, this guy is everywhere, and I was lucky to have him on a live stream. Uh, he's good friends with Dr. Peter Carmichael, the director of the Civil War Institute at Gaysburg College. Pete brought up to me that he wanted to bring Harold on the live stream, and apparently he had told him earlier about what we were doing here uh, on the Tattoo Serene page on Facebook and other places, obviously. And he was interested, so we brought him on, and we talked about Lincoln's legacy in times of crisis. And it runs about an hour, and we surely didn't get to everything that we wanted to get to. And uh, I hope that someday I can have Harold back on, and we can go over so much more. Uh, there's a lot of topics that we didn't even scratch the surface. So I know there's more content that we could bring to you later on. I know that uh, we also brought up the Lincoln Forum, which is a really cool organization that you should check out online. If you're into Abraham Lincoln or the politics of Lincoln's era, you're going to want to check out the Lincoln Forum. Uh, I'm a big fan of the Lincoln Forum. I won't be able to go to uh, a conference here in the near future because I'm moving, but maybe you'll want to go. I know they have one every November in Gettysburg. And uh, it's a great little conference, and they have a great time. And uh, I know that we push that in the live stream that you will hear that we did right here on Facebook. And uh, it was just a wonderful time, and it was a unique honor to have Harold Holzer on. And uh, he was a great guest. His cat even made a, an appearance. So it was a good time. So this is the audio from that live stream interview that we did on Facebook Live uh, just recently. We got a lot of attention through it and a lot of great questions and some questions that were brought up later on. Uh, I hope you enjoy the audio, though, and I hope you enjoy the program. And I hope you keep enjoying my podcasts. They've been a, a great uh, thing for me to do to get awareness out there about different historical topics, concepts, ideas. And I really enjoy doing them and bringing new people on. So, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, here is my friend Harold Holzer, my new friend Harold Holzer, along with my friend Dr. Peter Carmichael of the Civil War Institute at Gaysburg College and myself, talking about Abraham Lincoln and his legacy during times of crisis.
Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We're live here for another Facebook live stream. Thank you for tuning in. This is going to be a wonderful discussion tonight, and I'm sure a lot of you have been looking forward to this one. Uh, we started a three-minute delay, so we're fashionably late, but uh, I'm glad to be joined by my good friend, Dr. Peter Carmichael from the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College, and they are also a co-host of tonight's live stream. So, Pete, thank you for being here and joining us. Yes, John, thank you. And I will introduce our guest this evening, Harold Holzer. And many of you, uh, if you've not heard Harold speak, I suspect if you have any interest in Abraham Lincoln, you have read one of his either edited or <coughs> authored books. You have, uh, according to my count, 52. Is that correct, Harold? 53. Yes. I'm sorry. Lost count. Wow. The one that I'll bring uh, special attention to or call attention to is Lincoln and the Power of the Press. I have it right here. It was the Gilder Lehrman uh, Lincoln Prize winner three years ago. Um, no, five years ago. Five years ago. Yeah. Well, time flies. As many of you know, the Lincoln Prize is also co-sponsored with uh, Gettysburg College. Um, I should also note that Harold is the Jonathan Banton director of the Hunter College Roosevelt House School of Public Policy. That's a lot to get out, man. Are you, I know you're not back at Hunter College now, but they were doing some work uh, to the Roosevelt House. Were you able to get back into it before you then had to evacuate because of the virus? I did. I got in, I got some books that I'm reviewing. <laughs> so, uh, I took all I could get. It was like in and out and the house is closed, but like, like you guys, um, we've kind of converted to online education and beginning tonight, online public programs. We had some health experts tonight or this evening talking about the pandemic and healthcare in the United States. And we're gonna alternate between history from our archives and current events. The best we can do, but there seems to be a big appetite for it here. Yeah, no, absolutely. And Harold, we will have some of our viewers sending in questions here in just a little bit. I, we should also note here that you've received the National Humanities Medal on two occasions, 2008 and 2013, I believe. No, just one. Just one. Just 2008. You can only get it once. I was trying to yeah. give you twice. I thought that sounded odd. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you deserved it twice, though, Harold. <laughs> You know, I think, again, that that speaks to what Harold has done throughout his career. He's very much a public intellectual. He has um, reached out to audiences about Lincoln and about the Civil War. And one of his main platforms that he is a part of, and now I would say uh, El Jefe of, is the Lincoln Forum. And if you could just talk a little bit about the forum, what it meets, what it does. Okay. Uh, well, I'm, I'm branded this evening. You are branded. I thought it was appropriate. Well, Harold, there you, before you go any farther, I think, John, we have it. There he is, your tattoo. We've offered Harold. <laughs> Harold gets a 10% discount from General Pickett's Tattoo Parlor right here in Gettysburg. And, uh, and if he doesn't use it, Harold, I'm quite certain that there is a loose network of tattoo parlors that stretch all the way into New York City. So you can get the job done right there. I and you've got your tattoo. Know. Right. They, they don't take charge at Pickett's, at Pickett's place, though. <laughs> okay. So, so go ahead, um, about the forum. Yeah, so um, the Lincoln Forum is a, a, a 
we call it a family. It's an organization uh, with about 700 members. And we meet every uh, November, November, November 16th to 18th to be precise, right there in Gettysburg. Peter, as you well know, you were one of our featured speakers last year with your new book. And um, we get, oh, we, used, we started in the old days at the old, if, I mean, you guys will know these, these places, yeah. but the old Holiday Inn downtown, that's the one that's attached to the Jenny Wade House yeah. with about 80 or 90 people and a two-day conference. And we've grown over the years. We moved out to the Wyndham uh, on uh, at the confluence of routes, I guess it's 30 and 15. Correct. And uh, we had 330 people last year and terrific presentations. So we meet for three days. We hear speakers, we have breakout sessions, panels, dinner meetings, we give out awards and um, we have a terrific time um, uh, talking about history, uh, talking about Abraham Lincoln and the Civil War. And uh, this November, uh, if uh, um, we get a grace period from the emergency world living through now, uh, we will be marking our 25th anniversary as an organization with all sorts of extra activities that we're very happy that uh, Peter Carmichael has agreed to be part of uh, with some with a prequel a day in advance of our event. Yeah. We can only hope you know, we're planning for the best and uh, cognizant of the fact that uh, we don't know what's going to happen in November, but we have we're, we're going to plan ahead all of our speakers are enthusiastically agreed to come and it would just be talk about a pressure valve being released it would be a great thing if we could all get together safely and uh, together in gettysburg I, and i just want to say i've been to the forum a few times and have spoken and know many of the members there and i want to reiterate uh, harold's point that you know it is a sort of a family-like atmosphere uh, in which even if you feel like you don't really know a lot about Lincoln or a lot about the Civil War, but you've got a lot of enthusiasm and passion for the subject, it is a place in which one, you know, the talks are accessible and they're engaging. And two, you're going to be surrounded by just really nice uh, collegial people. And uh, it's just, it's a real joy. I, I've so enjoyed it. And I think the other thing that the forum does, uh, and sort of God's work, I believe, and that is scholarships for young people, uh, high school students. You all have always been so generous in trying to get Gettysburg College students to come. And of course the challenge is that they often have to miss classes, which they really can't do. And so they've not ever had a really strong presence there. I hope that we can maybe uh, change that somehow. But thank, form, thank you for mentioning, thank you for mentioning the scholarship programs. Yeah, we do uh, student scholarships and teacher scholarships. And teachers, yes, that's right. And uh, also an, an essay contest for college undergraduates, all of which, if I can just presume to do one little plug, if there are teachers and, uh, out there and students or parents of students who are interested in those scholarships, they're on our website, um, which is thelincolnforum.org, easy to find. And you also have a Facebook page too, your organization? We do. Not that I know how to direct people to it, but if you know how to find things on Facebook, we do have a Facebook page. Right, right. So if they wanted to come to the conference in the fall, they should look at the Facebook or go to the homepage 
and uh, again, become you'll a see, member and then become a member and sign on. Yeah, yeah, become a member and sign on. And we have we are organizations. We are kissing cousins of sorts. CWI and the Lincoln Forum. We have members in both, although we are not a membership-based organization, but we certainly draw from the same speaker pool. In fact, I'm very disappointed to announce that Gettysburg College uh, has canceled all summer programming, including the CWI conference. And Harold was gonna come uh, this summer and he was going to speak about Mary Lincoln with- Catherine Clinton. Clinton. That's right, that was- uh, Very uh, sad, very sad when these, this domino effect of things that, you know, mark your calendar out into the summer and beyond sort of fall. Um, and I'm gonna miss the, Institute, I've been to maybe 10 of them over the years, and they are also a phenomenon and a great place of friendship and student activity. Well, we will have quite a reunion, and I suspect that reunion will be, I hope, in 2021. Mr. G's Ice Cream for All will be our rallying cry. Ice Every cream Friday night. That's worth a visit, that yeah. ice cream. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I'm going to make the rough transition now to... Uh, <laughs> This evening's uh, conversation, uh, this evening's conversation is a look back on Lincoln's leadership at a time of crisis. And we're going to then use that as a, a platform from which Harold will just again sort of riff here and his vast knowledge of Lincoln and how presidents over time have drawn upon the legacy of the president, how maybe in some ways they have tried to use uh, Lincoln's uh, historical legacy. Uh, during their own moments of trial. And so, you know, we'll just go ahead and get started with what I think is a nice, easy question. Okay. Um, and that is, I'd like for you to tell us about Lincoln's first crisis as a president. <laughs> as soon as he took the oath, and that's a deep South that has, by the time he's taken office, almost entirely uh, pulled out of the Union. I'd like for you to just sort of reflect upon how Lincoln handled this uh, and tried to manage this situation and how, uh, again, he tried to sort of project himself uh, as to the American people uh, during this moment. Um, I, I would just twist, turn the question a little bit by saying, as I happen to be reading uh, Ted Whitmer's new book, uh, Lincoln on the Verge, uh, about the inaugural journey. Um, and uh, I would say he was in crisis on, from election day forward, not even before he took the oath. And that was because secession took place so quickly. He was whipsawed, uh, Lincoln was whipsawed by demands that he either conciliate the South or take a tough stance against secession. He had four or five ex-presidents at his heels uh, who were all disdainful of him. He had one of the ex-presidents leading a peace conference in Washington, D.C., proposing solutions that he had not signed off on. Who's that ex-president? John Tyler. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, um, and also um, faced the, the, the threat that he might not even make it to the inauguration and had to make a, a, his first major decision, which he later said he regretted, but I think he didn't have much choice. And that is um, whether to proceed with his public schedule through the Southern territory, slaveholding territory in Maryland, 
or do a dodge and make sure he got to Washington safely. And he, of course, as we know, as all Lincoln um, aficionados know, he chose uh, discretion over valor and snuck through Baltimore uh, in the dead of night in semi-disguise and got to Washington. So that was crisis number one. Well, we should, I think, though, in defense of John Tyler, if you can't be effective when you're a president, why not try to leave a mark when you're an ex-president? Um, well, he left a mark. He had, what did he have, 17 children? Yeah, crazy, yeah. crazy <laughs> number of children. By the way, he has, I will say one thing about the Tyler genetic. Um, he has a grandson. Yeah, that's right. Who was alive that's as right. we speak. And he <laughs> yep. was he was president in the 1840s. It's kind of uh, mind-boggling. Anyway, um, so of course the crisis to which you refer is that of uh, coming to Washington, making a, a kind of a peace overture with the inaugural address, which in its draft form was much tougher than the one he delivered. It ended with not the famous words about the better angels of our nature, which were added later, hmm. uh, but the choice is up to you. Will it be peace or a sword? It was kind of defiant. So he was, uh, he was conciliatory, but it didn't work. Uh, secession didn't end. And the, the big crisis was Fort Sumter. I think that's the one you wanted me to get to. So I'll do it quickly and then you can- You can get whatever you want. Yep. All right. So um, locals in the, in the newly organized Confederate States of America are seizing federal property, arsenals, uh, forts, postal buildings. In the argument, the, their argument was it's in our territory and we're taking them. The federal argument is we built them and they belong to the federal government. And the big examples were the forts in Florida and South Carolina. Uh, fort Sumter is the one we all remember. Uh, there were actually a few forts in Charleston. This, the garrisons all coalesced in Fort Sumter because it was on an independent island. I think it's a man-made island. I don't remember. I think so. And um, um, the South Carolinians demanded the, the fort. Uh, Major Robert Anderson in command said, waited for instructions. And Lincoln had to decide, do I take my stand for the Union at Fort Sumter? Uh, his Secretary of the State suggested they, they get out of Sumter fast and maybe make a stand in Florida, Fort Pickens. But Lincoln his ingenious um, response, I think, was uh, to announce that he wasn't going to refortify or rearm the fort, but would resupply it with provisions to provide sustenance to the men who were still serving. That provoked the firing on Fort Sumter in April 1861 and um, made Lincoln kind of uh, able to rally the North for a time in defense of the traducing of the flag as the phrase went then. So I think he handled that crisis well. Should he have uh, um, announced a blockade uh, within a few days that helped along with a call for volunteers to provoke the upper South out of the Union or you know the Car North Carolina and Virginia? That, that's open to debate, I guess, but especially the blockade, but we'll, you know, it was effective, but was it? So I'm gonna press here a little bit. Yeah. Okay. And again, I don't like to criticize a fellow Hoosier being Abraham Lincoln. I consider Indiana to be that crucial time period, his formative years where his- yes, I've heard that from many Hoosiers. 
<laughs> you, you know, you say he handled this well, he navigated it well, but I could say it, it seems to me that it was an abysmal failure, an abysmal failure because at the end of the day, one, the union, he wasn't able, of course, to somehow bring it back together, which is maybe asking too much. So, okay, we give him a break on that, but okay, old Abe, don't get us into a war here. When we think about the bloodletting that then followed, uh, that should not Lincoln be judged on the fact that he succumbed to, and I'm going to butcher Lincoln's word, words here so you can uh, clean them up for me, in which didn't he say that if he had to be sort of honest, frank, that um, he possessed little control over events, that events controlled him. Now, whether he actually said that or not, it's difficult to say, but it does not Sumter, does not that uh, remind us that at a moment of crisis, a moment when we needed a man to maybe stand up and to stop this madness from occurring, he in fact knew exactly what would happen, not after, not only after he let, or I should say, as you pointed out, really forced the Confederate hand, right? But then made it worse by demanding that those states that had not seceded to raise troops to suppress the rebellion. That's what, that pushes out Virginia, as you well know, pushes out North Carolina, pushes out Tennessee, pushes out Arkansas. So with that little mini speech that I just gave. So I, I know you're only playing devil's advocate. Uh, maybe I'm not. I'm not. Okay, well, I'm not going to ask because it's a legitimate question. So I, 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 I think you heard me question the blockade and the immediate call for volunteers, although I think it's understandable in the aftermath of what had been a firing on the American flag by Americans. Um, but uh, I, two things I wanted to address from your, um, your counter there. One is I take Lincoln at his word um, on most of the things he says. Uh, I don't take him at his word on events have controlled me. I never have. Um, he, he said it, uh, he wrote it to, uh, in defense of black recruitment a couple of years later um, as an explanation to a border state editor of why a man who, you know, uh, in 1858 had said he didn't believe that blacks could serve as jurors or as equals in any legal sense could now take up arms. Um, he's, he brushes it off by saying he, he I don't claim I've controlled events, but that events have controlled me. I used to have fights with David Donald about that. He was actually going to call his book, Events Have Controlled Me, but wiser wiser uh, minds took over that, that enterprise. Um, <laughs> I, I believe though that he was telling the truth and sort of in a bit of a confessional in the second inaugural when he said that when he was at the corresponding event four years earlier, there were people in Washington dedicated to destroying the Union without war or destroying it with war. And he said, but he added, no one imagined then the duration or the magnitude of what would happen. So looking back at 750,000 lives lost, can you say he should have found another way? Yes, but giving up the union and I think was an impossibility for him then. And he thought wrongly as it turned out that calling up volunteers and suppressing the rebellion quickly like July, which is what he hoped, would end it. Oh, I didn't take it once. Well, and a misjudgment, clearly. But you know, there's also a sense of inevitability there. 
I'll just take it one step further. Yeah, I, I was playing devil's advocate, although that is a, a position, an argument that certainly we've heard Lincoln's critics make. And we've heard others who just simply say, as you point out, that 750,000 casualties or maybe more than that, uh, that somehow some way that the political system uh, that became so dysfunctional needed to function, right? And that we have individuals in the wake of Lincoln's election, such as Critton and others, who were putting forth a compromise. And I'll say, I'm glad they failed. And I'm glad they failed because what do you say to an enslaved person in 1860? Well, not, it's not your time, but maybe it's the next generation's time or maybe the next generation after that. I mean, the moment had come and there again was where I have great admiration for Lincoln because it and is I, in yeah. that moment, he did not act like a politician. It is in that moment, he said, we're not kicking this can anymore. We're gonna face this issue. Absolutely. Even of course, the division of the country and horrible casualties. Boy, it's hard, it's hard to keep up with you, Peter. I have to say one step ahead of you or I'm gonna really fall behind here. But, <laughs> you know, it, it talk about a, a, but he was political, right? Absolutely. Quintessentially political. So while, he, of course, he is not willing to compromise on slavery expansion, He's not willing to compromise on uh, the, the sanctity of the union. He is willing to send the amendment that comes out of Crittenden's compromise, the, the first 13th amendment. He sends it to all the states for ratification. I mean, he doesn't send a message with it saying, this is the stupidest thing I've ever seen because it says slavery will not be debated ever in the halls of Congress and everything stays the same, not only for the next generation, but you know, for, the, for eternity. He sent it, and you know they keep discovering these messages in the archives of individual states. And I think a couple of states actually ratified the amendment, including Ohio, if I'm not sure, under Tom Corwin's aegis. Uh, so it was a strange time. But I'm glad we got you back in the Lincoln folder. I was worried for a minute. Well, I'm a little bit harder on Lincoln on some other things that I think everyone's given him a free pass, including our dear friend, scholar that I admire so much. Is James McPherson. I think that, well, we ought to talk about the politics and Lincoln's handling of the high command of Union armies. I'll let John, I'm sure, has a question here uh, for you. Yeah, I was wondering, since we were just talking about the Upper South and the firing on Fort Sumter and such, Lincoln's handling of the border state crisis and how he politics with that and, and maneuvers around that. Uh, I think that's an important story that's often overlooked. Uh, what are your thoughts on how he handled, especially like Maryland and, and Kentucky and places in that regard? You know, it, it's, I just had a thought that I hadn't considered before, but it's uh, in the pandemic of secession um, uh, a century and a half ago, Lincoln sort of had a state-by-state -state strategy. Huh. He didn't let the governors do what they wanted, but he had a state-by-state -state strategy. Mm -hmm. So in, um, Missouri, uh, he's willing to fight. In Kentucky, he says, I need, I must have God on my side, but I must have Kentucky. Mm -hmm. Delaware, he ignores. And Maryland, he declares martial law, basically locks up the state legislature. Anybody who is um, uh, pushing back against uh, union supremacy, he meets the mayor. Of, the mayor of Baltimore tells him, um, we have a really important local decision that we're making here, and that is, that all of these soldiers you're sending here from New York and New England, they can't come through Baltimore because it's dangerous. And Mr. Lincoln, what could be more obvious than, you know, you dodged Baltimore, but we don't want any trouble. And Lincoln says, 
my, my soldiers are not birds, they can't fly. They're not fish, they can't swim, and they're not moles, they can't bore under the earth. So they will come through Baltimore. And of course they were attacked on the same railroad cut line that, that Lincoln would have been attacked on, I think in February, 1861. Anyway, so yes, state by state strategy. And as I discussed um, a few years ago in the book that Peter was generous enough to hold up to the screen, part of that was suppression of opposition newspapers. There it is again. He, um, he uh, General Fremont, uh, General Grant in their early days were happily confiscating printing presses, arresting editors, and shutting down uh, anti-union journalism in Missouri. In Kentucky, editors were imprisoned. They were shipped, one of them I trace in the book was shipped off to Brooklyn, uh, to Fort Lafayette, and uh, waited months before uh, Secretary Seward heard his case. And of course, all of these folks were arrested and locked up without a civil trial, without habeas corpus, and without a hearing. So it was a, it was a period where I think he had a state by state, almost a county by county strategy, and he was tough as nails mm -hmm. and extra constitutional, some might argue as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so again, let's just think big here about uh, a way of characterizing, if we can, Lincoln's leadership. And what you just explained to us, it seems to me that it's a, uh, it's a president who at his very core, a pragmatist. And, 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 I, and you can either affirm or disagree with that, but I just want you again to reflect on another point that's related, and that is, it seems to me that pragmatism and politics today is impossible. Uh, that for whatever reason, Americans can't recognize a good idea as a good idea and what its outcome might be and how it might benefit you know, the most. Rather, uh, it's so now rooted in partisanship. And more importantly, pragmatism today now is almost viewed as a loss of principle, right? That you don't really stand for something that you're bending uh, to accommodate someone else or accommodate a particular interest. And so you know, Lincoln's politics of pragmatism, which I think is maybe you know, a way of understanding his handling of military affairs, how he deals with emancipation, how he deals with internal dissent. Is, is, that, is that a way of, of understanding Lincoln? And have we lost it, as I think we have, in today's political world? Uh, I think that's a really terrific analysis. I, I mean, I think we do have to concede, though, that um, Lincoln's rise may have been attributed to a careful pragmatism and uh, to reaching for, you know, the limits of the possible within the constraints of a kind of racist society and a, a, a different regional aspirations and mores. But once the Southern states leave, he has kind of an easier time of it politically. He's, he's really battling with Northern Democrats. And think of all of the voters whose opinions don't matter for, for the whole four years of his administration. He's really should be speaking only to the converted. He's speaking to the North. He, the, the 1862 elections are in the North, the, 18, the congressionals. The 1863 big gubernatorial election is in Ohio. It's not in the South. And 64 is just the North. So um, he, he, he gets to be a little more principled and a little tougher because he doesn't have that big chunk of opposition. They fortuitously, in a, in, if you want to be, you know, 
absent the bloodshed and the, and the destruction, they've conveniently left the union and left it with a much, much freer hand. But pragmatism is not the only thing that I think characterizes leadership. There are so many sterling qualities that he brought to a crisis. And I always think one of the biggest ones is a kind of modesty. He was in his core and immodest, a self, um, you know, he had a self-confident person. He had no doubts about his own ability. And there's a famous story about his first meeting with Charles Sumner in Washington. Sumner, Harvard educated, a diplomat, worldly, spoke languages. Probably uh, insufferable. Insufferable. Or as Lincoln said, my idea of a bishop um, comes to the Willard Hotel to meet him for the first time, convinced that he's going to wrap this hick or Hoosier or Hoosier Hick around his fingers and tell him what to do. And when he left, they said, Senator, how was, so someone said, Senator, how was the meeting? He said, I've never met a man who's more arrogant and had more a sense of superiority than this man. He's, he's insufferable. So Lincoln rose to the occasion. But what, one of the things he did is sort of put away petty argumentation. Um, long before he so beautifully said malice toward none, he used the word again or previously and said, what I'm doing is too big for malice. He didn't care about petty um, uh, uh, conflicts. There's a famous story of McClellan, the General McClellan, not his greatest choice for command, but um, treating him with such great disrespect and Lincoln telling uh, a, a friend, or I think it was John Hay or John Nicolay, I would hold McClellan's horse if he would bring me victories. He was also smart enough to know what he didn't know. Look at the reading lists of the books he borrowed from the Library of Congress at the start of the secession crisis. He took out Henry Halleck's books on military strategy. And within a year, he seemed to know more about joint command than- Halleck did. Than yeah, than anybody did. <laughs> so the, his autodidactic- Probably learned uh, to look the other way and to not get into any kind of petty exchanges, uh, living with Mary Lincoln. And, and I'm being serious. I suspect that, of course, if he, right, you would have little skirmishes almost every day with her if you did not just say, you know what, I'm just going to move on. And yeah, or whoever you want me to appoint to office, I will do this. And there again, I think that there is just cause to um, have a, a hard look at Lincoln who for some generals, Ben Butler, Hutler, Hunter, Banks, uh, these are political appointees. These are men who had demonstrated time and time again that they were not capable, qualified to then men, lead men in the field. And the consequence of Lincoln staying by them for really political reasons mm -hmm. is a lot of Northern soldiers died needlessly. Now, others could counter, including James McPherson to say, that without those political appointees, that you're not gonna be able to mobilize Northern people uh, to serve in the ranks. I just disagree with that. You got a draft and, uh, and you didn't need to stick by those men. Well, what, uh, you mean stick by them after the draft began? Yeah. I think, right. Jim, I think Jim McPherson is, is right that the, the um, enlisting the support of uh, democratic generals and colonels was crucial to making the war not a Republican war, but a union war. And also, um, I remember John Y. Simon rolling these German names off 
Shimon Fanning and uh, uh, um, others, you know, getting German generals, getting some Irish commanders was crucial to, because of the number of immigrants and first generation people living in America. So yeah, you, so your point is that these stuck with them too long. Too long. I mean, by, you know, certainly by late 63, early 64, you've reached a point in the war where I'm not sure that's necessary, obviously. It's easy for me to make that kind of a call, but I think that, again, we need to take a hard look at that yeah. as well as- It's also trying to win some pro-war Democrats in 1862 elections and in 1864 as well. I'm not sure he did, uh, but, but so there are still political reasons because without the commander in chief in place, as Lincoln said more than once, the whole game is lost. Yes. And I would argue about Butler, the Butler, beloved of African-American troops, right? Uh -huh. Even created a medal, a, a medal for them to congratulate them on their valor in a, in, a, in a battle. I forget the battle, but I think he cost many soldiers their lives in the battle and Grant relieved them, but they weren't even allowed to wear the Butler medal because it wasn't, um, what is it? What do you call it? Ordained or yeah, by the War Department? Yeah. It hasn't been approved. Right, right. Yeah. I've seen a few of those. They're pretty amazing. <laughs> so, John, I'm going to throw in one last quick question here, and then and then run in, and that's because you just mentioned the '64 election, and I'd like you know, Harold, to give our audience what you think historians um, their general assessment of that election, how we should look at it. Is it something that is a moment in our history uh, that that we should sort of embrace and take pride in? Or do you have maybe a different take on the 64 election? So give our audience a little bit of background, what do historians think? And then, uh, yeah, curious. Um, this is to me. Yeah. So, so um, I think the most important thing about the 1864 election has always been that it took place uh, in the midst of a, of a civil war. Um, I think it's a, a, a lesson and a precedent that uh, will should govern all of our uh, all of our future contests. That the idea that Lincoln had that if the election was postponed, then uh, secession and disunion would have succeeded automatically, even without a vote of the people. And uh, even as we begin to hear whispers, uh, rumors that the pandemic could force us, heaven forbid, to use mail ballots or other. Uh, quote, unquote, untrustworthy sources of casting ballots, that there is no way to postpone a national election in the United States, that we've had them through wars and through rebellions, and they are crucial. And the fact that he permitted it when he cracked down so much on, uh, on constitutionally guaranteed rights to reunite the country is an extraordinary testament to him. So that's the most important thing. I think my friend uh, Jonathan White has pointed out that the, uh, the legendary 80% approval he got from the soldiers in the separately counted soldiers vote can be questioned a bit uh, because uh, so much Republican politicking was going on, so much shame heaped upon his opponents in what was anything but a secret ballot in those days. And so much censorship of democratic newspapers, as I pointed out, it was pretty hard to get a democratic newspaper except for the New York Herald maybe, which was in the middle of the road there, uh, into camps. So a mixed bag, but I just think a triumph of the original intent of the founders that they be elections every four years. So John, your thoughts about the 64 election? Uh, I really think it's an interesting uh, subject to cover because 
I'm from South Central Pennsylvania and parts of the area flipped in 1864 from Republican to Democrat, which is really interesting to me because the war came through this area in 63 uh, in mass. And it's a really interesting thing to think about, especially Adams County where Gettysburg is flipped Democrat in 64. And I've often wondered why that might have been. I know there's a, a strong Democratic presence in the, in the area, but it, it's an interesting uh, thing to think about. If it could flip in Gettysburg and Adams County, where else was, was this going on? And we actually just had a question come across about the 64 election. It said, uh, Christopher Powers says, what made the Democrats think that McClellan was capable of winning the 64 election? Which is an interesting question too. Well, he's a—I mean, he's a war hero, and in, in the eyes of many, still despite his uh, his failures, but he didn't have any battlefield defeats, really, to speak of. I mean, you could call the Seven Days Campaign, as he would have called it, McClellan, as a changing or shifting a basis, and that was not just a euphemism. I mean, that's exactly what McClellan did. He rescues the army after Manassas, and Antietam is. You know, it's a tactical victory. Some people might argue that it's draw, but, and he's of course beloved by his soldiers, even to the bitter end, even if they break with him politically. So he's a pretty attractive candidate. And of course, he has a political philosophy that you know, speaks to most mainstream war Democrats. And uh, I think Lincoln was demonstrably fearful up until the eve of the Democratic convention that he was going to be beaten by McClellan. I mean, he forces well, the cabinet members to uh, to sign on to uh, a pledge to cooperate with the incoming administration because today, as for some days uh, now, it seems likely that this administration will be defeated. And just to John's point, New York State uh, also, um, which united behind a single Democratic candidate in 1860, uh, an effort to coalesce anti-Lincoln sentiment was weaker for Lincoln in 1864 than in 1860. I think Lincoln understood that, what did he say, the heavens are hung with black. Uh, the death had touched every part, every family in some way. Uh, uh, had a member or a friend or a distant relative who had been consumed by the war or was serving and was in danger and in harm's way. So I think that, that just the 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 losses were incalculable and they and understandably lots of otherwise diehard Republicans wanted, wanted that bloodletting to end. And Lincoln had taken a huge risk by adding uh, black freedom to his, uh, to his rationale for running and for the war. That was a complete change from what he had said in 1860 or even in, in uh, before uh, September 1862. So, so the fact that he won it all is kind of remarkable. And thank it, you. Know, it is remarkable. Ed Ayers, uh, formerly University of Virginia, then president of University of Richmond, he gave a talk at the Institute in which um, he simply looked at the popular vote in 64. And to my surprise, it's extraordinarily close. I mean, the it's a landslide electoral college. Yeah. But, and, and you just, you know, you've got to only imagine Lincoln thinking, good God, what do I need to do? I have secured a number of important victories from the fall of Atlanta to Mobile and Shenandoah Valley. Uh, clearly the Confederacy's on its ropes and still, uh, still uh, Lincoln uh, you know, damn near lost it. Yeah. 
I just I want you all to give me your opinions about this. And I might be discrediting myself here in listening to Alan Dershowitz during the impeachment trial in the Senate, in which he was trying to make a case that in the past that there had been violations of the Constitution that had been far more significant than the uh, charges that, uh, that the House of Representatives had voted in the impeachment. And one of the things that Mr. Dershowitz brought up was the 64 election. They said, when you look at the 64 election, uh, for some reason, Dershowitz picked on my state and said, there were examples in which Indiana troops were not permitted to vote. And I don't know if that specific is correct, but I all of us here know that wasn't a democratic election. It was far from it. Hell, when you are allowing Republican regiments to come home and to vote and you're denying Democratic regiments to do it. Now, listen, I'm glad the election came and I'm certainly thankful that Lincoln won it. But don't you think that this is an instance in which we want to have that feel good story about Lincoln and about our civil war? I mean, this to me is a moment in which we look at the 64 election and we look at it by, by pulling the curtains back and saying, Here's your democracy, the American people. It is rough, it is ugly, and often it is what? It's in the gutter and dirty. Yeah. That's the success. Um, I'm not even gonna comment on Alan Dershowitz. I, I, will, I will say, I'm really glad that I did this, that um, I got to sit in the Senate chamber for about an hour and a half uh, with my wife, thanks to Senator Durbin. Um, so, uh, watch some of the trial, uh, which was which was really fascinating, dull, but you know, in the end, right. with all the formalities and the pomp that attended every every you know question. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, I, I don't think you can make uh, anything but a virtue of Lincoln's um, insistence on on having the election. There are dirty politics in American elections, you know, from 1800 on, and it's tough out there and People don't want people not to vote and they want their people to vote. And uh, look, the, soldiers vote, the whole soldiers vote idea is revolutionary, not denying the franchise to people just because they're serving their country. Yeah, but Harold, you have to admit, we look the other way when Stan in particular, this isn't just some dirty tricks, right? I mean, this isn't nickel and dime stuff. This is denying people the right to the franchise because they were of the other party. It was not a legit election. I mean, I think we need unless to you show me unless you show me a a uh, a hand count of your so-called democratic regiments and Republican regiments, I'm not going to buy into. I'm going to get Jonathan White on speed dial, and he can uh, he can fill I, in. The I I like his book a lot, and yes, not only those who were allowed to go home, but there was a little bit of voter repression or shaming um, uh, in camp. But listen. Look at the account of Lincoln's voting on election day 1860 in Springfield. It was like frenzy in the streets and two giant glass bowls uh, set up in the Springfield courthouse. And when you went into the polling place, you got a Republican ballot first or a Democratic ballot. And nobody thought there was a secret ballot. And there was pressure. People were yelling and screaming, don't vote for Lincoln. Lincoln tears his own name off the ballot in this big... Um, um, demonstration of uh, modesty. It, uh, so um, it, I don't think it was any rougher than any other election. It's, it's like the, it's like the way, it's not, it's not that close of an election. It's like 53 and a half to 46 and a half. So that's a pretty good 
you know, president, most presidential elections are pretty close. Yeah, pretty close. They're yeah. not all 1964 and 1984 or 1972. John, yeah, go ahead. I remember the landslide, 36. I was, I was uh, talking with some people earlier who, who follow the page and uh, a lot of people who follow my page really got into Lincoln due to popular history. And it was mainly because of, of seeing the movie and, and uh, the, the back and forth with uh, the cabinet and uh, you know, his, his staff and such. Do you, uh, what, how did Lincoln use his cabinet to his advantage? Because he wasn't someone who thought he knew everything and he could, he could just do it all himself. He, he relied on different sorts of people to do yeah. his job. I think he was always a delegator, and um, he, um, as as remember, the cabinet selection in the Lincoln era was not done um, in the manner in which it was done in the I would say from the seventies until uh, twenty seventeen. Um, in recent generations, cabinets have been named according to uh, you know to create kind of the look of America: gender balance, ethnic balance racial balance, or not balance, but representation. In Lincoln's day, it was all about uh, regional representations and the states that had voted uh, loyally and heavily for Lincoln, especially those that had been um, consequential in the, at the Republican convention by switching votes got rewarded. So the big states that had to be taken care of were Ohio, um, Indiana, New York, Illinois, Lincoln's friends in Illinois said, who are you going to pick from Illinois? And he said, I'm from Illinois. Nobody else gets <laughs> um, in Pennsylvania. So they all got a seat at, at the table. And they barely knew most of them. He'd met Seward once or twice. He corresponded with him during the secession winter. Uh, he knew Chase a bit. Um, um, he knew Bates. Bates came to see him in Springfield. Um, it's a remarkable thing that... Um, that uh, I'm going to get a visit from a cat here in a minute. <laughs> he doesn't like my being on on, on my computer. Um, <laughs> sorry about that. Um, so, um, hello. <laughs> you um, have a cat boat here on our stream. <laughs> Go ahead, Errol. So um, now I've been distracted. If I put her down, she's going to bite me. So I have yeah, to no, leave her up. <laughs> um, he had good people there, and he. The other thing that people don't, I don't think, have full knowledge of, it's kind of obscure, but it's interesting, is that for a while, Lincoln's cabinet functioned the way an Israeli cabinet functions today. That is, they had to vote on issues of policy. And it, it was very difficult for Lincoln to, um, to, um, to go forward with things without the consent of the cabinet. He sort of, by emancipation time, he said, okay, I know I'm supposed to bring this to you the second time he brought emancipation to the cabinet. So, but this time I made a pact with God that if we drove Lee out of Maryland, we were gonna do the emancipation. So I don't need your vote. Um, <laughs> do you think anyone really believed that when he said, I made a pact with God? Uh, there's no way they can't believe that. I mean, I, I, nobody objected this time. There's no right. That's because that's just the kind of thing you can't object to. <laughs> You Did really, they believe him? I think he sort of, I think he prayed. He prayed for his life. He prayed for the Union's life during that Maryland invasion, right? So yeah. it's okay. I was right. God is on my side after all. Yeah. So, John, could you, your favorite Lincoln moment of the war, John? And then I'm curious what John, John 
what Harold did. <laughs> wow, that puts me on the spot there. Favorite yeah. moment. Okay. Favorite moment. Yeah, our moment incident. Yeah, whatever. It just in the, just in the Civil War era or antebellum too. Yeah, I mean, if you wanted to do before the war, that's fine as well too. But. Uh, I really, I'm, I like his his speech about a house divided against itself cannot stand, which which comes from the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've actually stood in the in in the chamber where he said that, and that really struck me as a speech that's uh, often forgotten about. Uh, we we cut that one line out, and that's all we we take and we put it over here, uh, kind of like second inaugural with malice towards not or and such. Uh, so I think his pre-war years where he actually showcases that he is against uh, slavery going further west and 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 such that's often forgotten about by some people because they they come back to 1860 1861 and say see he's he doesn't care what happens with slavery he'll 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 uh save union while leaving half enslaved and let half free in his antebellum years he's showcasing that he doesn't believe that years before that but that speech he gives about a house divided against itself is is one of my favorite times of his political career i mean without those moments he wouldn't have a presidency in my opinion i don't have i don't have harold's knowledge but i think in my opinion like (laughs) i love his early his early days where he's just making a mark and the lincoln douglas debates are just part of that too where uh, I remember watching as a kid the reenactments of the Lincoln-Douglas debates on C-SPAN, and that really took me and I, for a ride with, with the Lincoln uh, subject. Yeah, I, I, I liked everything you said up until the part where you said you were a kid during the reenactment. <laughs> that was painful. <laughs> Sorry. Because I wasn't even know. young for that. You got to cut my feet off now. <laughs> can, I, can I tell you one story about I think what John describes is something amazing about being on the site um, where these events took place and standing at that that uh, rostrum in the state capitol in Springfield has that effect. Um, I, the place for me, the, the talismanic place is Cooper Union because it's here in New York. Um, my first cousin went there years and years, I think six more than maybe 65 years ago, he graduated. Um, and he took me there when I was a kid. And um, um, I wrote a book about the just that speech. That's my... <laughs> <laughs> We're ready. Thank you. Yeah, so I, I, can I tell you a quick name dropping story about my you experience? Yeah. I love name dropping. I was, I was speaking at a New York private school a few years ago. And um, I got uh, questions from, uh, from kids. And then the parents were asked if they if they wanted to ask questions. So a man stood up in the back and said something similar to what Peter has said. If you could be at any speech that um, Abraham Lincoln ever delivered, what would it be? So I said Cooper Union, and um, and he said not the Gettysburg Address. And I'm looking into the audience and I realize it's it was Jerry Seinfeld. No he, way. So wow. He said not not the Gettysburg Address, and I said. Not that there's anything wrong with that. The <laughs> audience cracked up, but he didn't. He didn't like that. He did. So, oh. No, he didn't like it. Um, but so here's my point. Cooper Union, who wants to wait out there for hours at Gettysburg and then do three minutes? 
when you could sit in these luxurious seats and listen to two hours of Abraham Lincoln. So that that's the moment for me when he when he shows and and beyond the the glib response, the fact that he is able to captivate a snobbish elite New York audience, which is not predisposed to being persuaded by this famous debater, this frontier debater. It's still not. Just as a curiosity to see him. Um, I think that's his, that's the moment where he has, that's the make or break moment for him in his career, is winning. Mm. And of course he doesn't get any support at the convention from New York, but he gets the press. And that was the important part. This is a fantastic book. I mean, you've done so much, right? But I really, I think it's a really, it's an important book. It's beautifully well-written. That's a, this book will stand the test of time. Yeah. Thank you, Peter. It's yes. really quite Thank good. You. So, Harold, um, at this time, this tumultuous time, this time of crisis that's facing the globe, uh, at a time in which we often, you know, are, are searching and seeking for things in the past, for inspiration, for reassurance, for direction. And so, when you think about Lincoln, um, how do you draw upon, of course, you have this vast knowledge, as John pointed out, but where should we look in terms of Lincoln's either actions or his words? Like, where, where should we go? What should we read or write or what should we think about yeah. or all of the all, above? All of the above, man, it's all connected. I mean, what we always need in America is someone who um, rises to the occasion, who, um, reflects the American spirit uh, of equality of opportunity, who ideally who has lived that dream and can express it rhetorically uh, in, in, in words and be inspiring, um, has modesty and humor. Um, I, I just worry about um, looking to the past in some way because Lincoln said it so beautifully that the dogmas of the quiet past are inadequate to the stormy present. It's kind of hard uh, to, um, to uh, think that a 19th century leader could deal with or automatically deal with the crises that we face in the early 21st century. Although the characters, the, char the character elements that he brought to leadership are ones that we need to look for. The, the just the 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 sympathy, the empathy. Um, I don't know where we find it again. There's never going to be another Lincoln, I fear. But uh, again, understanding America and reflecting America in words is is it's harder than ever. There are 300 million people, uh, not the fraction of people who are in, alive in 1860, and we are divided. And uh, where is our new Lincoln? I don't know. So John, I'm just to have your some final thoughts here, and then I will bring it back uh, to Harold and see if we have any questions from the audience. But uh, for you, John, when you think about this moment that we are enduring, uh, is there uh, a, a way that you find inspiration and comfort from Lincoln, from again as being a kid and and going to that special place? Uh, where Lincoln gave the House Divided speech. Hmm. Does the past comfort you in any way? Uh, I found that as a, uh, as a kid, I was always 
comforted by the past because I could lose myself in the pages of any book, uh, you know, and I could live multiple lives through the pages of a book. Uh, but I'm really, uh, you know, I'm really optimistic, which I think we need to keep in mind about the future of where we're heading. And I also think this is a great time for, for reflection. And I think we're seeing that on a mass scale. Uh, we're taking a crisis that we are living through right now, and we are looking at ourselves and what we have taken for granted and uh, just being able to watch a baseball game or just whatever it may be that we've taken it for granted for so long. And I really think that when we uh, look back on the times where, where we had the Lincoln administration and such and really see what a divided nation who decides they just can't deal with it anymore does to each other. It's, uh, we are divided politically uh, along very harsh lines, uh, but we, we can look back to the past for a little bit of inspiration because there was this idea of pragmatism and there was this idea of helping each other out even if we are from opposite sides of the spectrum. And when we're going through a crisis as we're going through now, it knows no political party or affiliation. We're all going through it together. And I think that uh, when, we, when we look back on it that way, we can maybe learn some more lessons from, from the past in general. Well, I think there's a lot we could learn from not only Lincoln's era, but others as well. Well, you know, I, what both of you say, uh, have to say about this issue, I think it is compelling and important. And, and again, it reminds me, Harold, that, that this tendency that I think a lot of people have who are deeply interested in the past and want to believe that somehow either the past repeats itself or that in the past we can find answers to our present crises. And I think, as you both said, and, and, and Harold, you in particular, the, the idea that a 19th century leader uh, could somehow be better equipped uh, to contend with the issues that we're confronting now as uh, the kind of wishful thinking that I think reflects what is what I believe the real one of the major problems that's confronting us as Americans. And it is a naivete slash idealism about American politics. Hmm. It's always been ugly. It's always been bitter. It's always been in the gutter because it's not Republicanism with a small r. It's democracy. And as Harold, as you have, I think done with such great skill and I think with balance and the word that you both have used is empathy. And you've done that with Lincoln. You have enabled us to understand how this man could be so savvy politically, could be so tough-minded, but never tough-hearted, right? Uh, there is always a compassion to that man, even when he had to do some ugly things. And, and so I think, again, Harold, what you said, and, and John as well, boy, those are the characteristics, right, that we need to see, not just in our leaders, but amongst Americans, and we are. I tell folks that all the time, you come here to this battlefield and you go to the McPherson Woods, and I describe the McPherson Woods in the evening of July the 1st, where Union soldiers are left for dead. These wounded men are crying out for water. No one's helping them, and no surprise there, they're behind Confederate lines. But of course, like on every battlefield, there are thieves and there are Confederates stealing from these men. It's a horrible sight. And so on the one hand, we should always remember that and that ugliness of this place. But as all of us know, and our listeners know, 
you can go on almost any civil war battlefield and find these great acts of humanity and decency. And so we can only hope, right, that the past will at least give us the confidence that we know. And I'm sure, Harold, you've seen it every day around New York City now of people coming together to pull through this thing. So, you know, I can't say enough about not just Harold's scholarship, but as you all can tell, if you've not heard Harold speak before, he is such a captivating speaker. And knows, and this gonna sound, this is an age thing, right? You know a lot of stuff, man. How did you know all that? Right? By the way, I, 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 I fear that after listening to both of you speak so eloquently that I came off as a little bit cynical here. No, you did not. I don't wanna leave a cynical note. I mean, I wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have spent 50 years with Abraham Lincoln if I didn't think that it was an inspiring pursuit. I, I will say the one big difference about New York now is that we can't do anything together. We have to do everything apart. Yes. That's very painful. It's very lonely and um, it's very difficult. Um, where our families are divided um, uh, into supposedly safe and secure places and it's totally unheard of. And it's very interesting to see what leaders are, are emerging as people we can trust um, by being factual and um, honest and um, and tough about staying away from each other as long as it takes. We can get through this. That's absolutely right. Yeah. Well, Harold, I will say before we close here, uh, even though you're right, you're separated from much of your family and your grandson, who I hope, well, I hope it's not bedtime for him. Hell, there's no school. He can stay up all night. I'm giving you it's eight o'clock. Are you kidding? We got three hours of three more hours of him. He's watching it. And Harold, you've got your partner in crime, Edith, uh, your wife, who's just such a wonderful woman. She I've been listening. I heard her groaning when I talked gave the start of the Seinfeld story. <laughs> I've not heard that. That's fantastic. Well, you know the Seinfeld episode in which George sees Keith Hernandez. Right? And they're in he's and they're in a locker room. And George says, Hey, it's Keith Hernandez. And I think he's a Civil War buff. I think that's Seinfeld says he's a Civil War buff, which is true. Hernandez. Yeah. And Seinfeld said, or uh, George says to Seinfeld, I want to be a buff. And Seinfeld tells him, But well, George, you gotta read something to be a buff. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I just want to go back again to say that, you know what, that's what makes always talking with you, conversing with you, it's always so engaging. I always learn so much because you do what we need to do as historians, immerse ourselves in the sources and read, read, and read. And so, you know, if you get an opportunity, get to the Lincoln Forum, you'll see Harold in action and some other really fine Civil War historians as well. Yes, thank you. thank you for coming on the live stream, Harold. This was this is an awesome opportunity for a lot of maybe new people to to see you on here. So in a new in a new way. <laughs> really glad you asked me. I had a lot of fun, and it's always great to talk to Peter. I'm never sure I I convinced him about anything because he's always very enigmatic about it. We've well, had lots you know, of great. You know what I tell my students? I tell my students I want you to leave my class confused, and I. <laughs> I know, you, I know you succeed. <laughs> hey, Harold, take good care of yourself, man. Stay healthy. You. Talk to you as I said hello as well. Thank yeah. you. Take Thank care. you, Harold. Thank All you. Right. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Well. For